Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the Polmaps Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with scholars of books in the field. Joining us today from Beirut is Noah Solomon. He's the author of For Love of the Prophet, an Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State, published a few years ago by Princeton University Press. Uh, Noah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's great to be here with you. Uh, I really look forward to our conversation. Well, this is, a, this is actually, I believe, the first uh, uh, podcast we've done on a book about the Sudan, and I'm very excited. So oh, um, tell, tell us a little bit about the book. What, do you, what was the major uh, purpose of the book, the major contribution that you think it was, it was making? Yeah, so the book uh, really set out to uh, explain something that I felt hadn't been touched on in the literature on Islamic politics. And that was uh, to look at the Islamic State project from the question of its sustenance. How is it sustained, uh, particularly over a period of almost 30 years, as it was uh, in the Sudanese case. We've seen a lot of work on the sort of theoretical possibilities of the Islamic State or the impossibilities of the Islamic State, but very little on kind of how, um, how it becomes a, a subject of, of daily life. And, you know, Sudan in particular struck me that the literature uh, around it was around, around a failed state. And, and in many ways, Sudan was full of failures uh, in, its, in its modern history. But what I uh, was also puzzled by and curious by is how this political project, particularly if it was characterized as not just a failed state, but a weak state, had persisted over this period uh, for so long, and despite its many, many failures. Um, and so I began to look at this question of how the Islamic State um, was not just created, but sustained. Um, and this is really where the, the title of the book came out of, For Love of the Prophet. Um, it comes out of a, of a project that the state spearheaded in um, trying to instill a certain kind of emotional attachment to uh, the idea of an Islamic State. Um, and it comes out of my commitment to thinking about how the state wasn't merely, or was that also, wasn't merely a, uh, an institution coming from on high and uh, oppressing, uh, oppressing everything beneath it, but it was also a productive project, productive in the sense of creating a certain kind that it then could capitalize upon. One, one of the things which really struck me as a... Um, as a someone who mainly focuses on Islamism within the Middle East, is the extent to which uh, you know Sudan tends to be ignored by scholarship on Islamist politics, even though, as you say, it's a thirty-year-long project and one of the few examples we have of Islamism actually in power. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I'm I'm a Sudan scholar, so I could uh, I'm I'm somewhat partial in, in saying that I don't know why it's ignored so much, and and it shouldn't be. Uh, I think there's a lot of lessons within Sudan uh, for other countries, uh, not just in the Middle East, but across the the world, where Islam has an important place in political conversations. Um, I, I think, and it's, you know, it's not just that there's lessons there to be learned elsewhere, but Sudan is also at a crossroads of, of many uh, of many regions and of many other countries that have uh, intersected with its history in important ways. And I think, you know, to understand uh, the Middle East and to understand Africa, Sudan plays a really important role in showing us something about both regions. So 
I'm with you 100%. More people should focus on Sudan. So, so you start, um, and you don't start here, obviously. You go back to the colonial period. But to me, in many mm-hmm. ways, you know, in 1989, and the Nkav comes to power, Tarabi comes in, and you have this wonderful mm-hmm. line about how these intellectuals had always been in opposition. They're suddenly giddy over suddenly actually having control over a state. But then they mm-hmm. confront all of these like real issues about what does it mean to be an Islamic state. Tell us a little bit about that. What did they confront as they looked around at this uh, Sudan that they were suddenly in control of? This is what I found so deeply fascinating about working in Sudan. When I came to Sudan as a, as a grad student for the first time, I'd read all of the Islamic political theory and Islamic political modernist, Islamic political theory and philosophy. And all of it had these, you know, big ideas with very few specifics. And what was so interesting to me in Sudan is that the Islamists there suddenly had to deal with, you know, the the drudgery of the everyday uh, uh, running of a bureaucracy on the one hand, and on the other hand, some very big and real questions, a civil war that was going on uh, in the South. Uh, the question of religious diversity, uh, international pressures uh, from from major powers. How would they both uh, stay true to their goals uh, in establishing an Islamic political order and respond to these demands? And the period that I arrived in Sudan to really start my fieldwork was right at the cusp of the 2005 uh, Comprehensive Peace Agreement. And this, to me, was uh, the period that uh, the Islamists were forced most uh, most sort of starkly to address some of these problems in a serious way, because that's what the peace agreement asked them to do, and asked them to form a partnership with the Sudan People's Liberation Movement that represented a, a diverse but uh, plurality of non-Muslim uh, Southerners. Um, and uh, the period that I uh, did the bulk of my fieldwork was a period of a rethinking of that Islamic State project. I, 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 I think, you know, many thought, okay, they're going to abandon the Islamic State project and move towards a, a, a more secular model as the SPLM was demanding. But what I really found was, was not that, rather a rethinking of what it meant to be an Islamic State that did deal with diversity, that could think about national unity. Now it failed, the project failed, of course, uh, the uh, creating some kind of national unity out of the peace agreement. Sudan uh, separated, uh, there was a partition in, in 2011. Um, but nonetheless, this, this period of five years, this interim period where I did my fieldwork was a really fascinating time to see the Islamic movement uh, grapple with these challenges and grapple with rethinking itself in real time. So tell me about kind of how this plays out in practice. You talk about the civilization project, you talk about the creation of Islamic State. So what does it mean in practice, uh, the creation of what they consider to be an Islamic State? How, how do they approach that in terms of governance and kind of top-down instruction, such as it, such as it was? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's two ways that I could answer this question. Of course, there's, uh, there's the top down stuff. There's, uh, there's the Islamization of law. There's the Islamization of education. There's uh, all kinds of popular mobilization projects coming from the state. Mm -hmm. Um, But, 
you know, to be full, and that's what I went to study when I went to Sudan. I, I went to my initial project in Sudan was to study the education system because I thought where better to see how the ideologies of the Islamic State were being reproduced than in the education system. But as I said, when I got to Sudan, it was a very different period. In fact, many of those top-down projects were frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to the uh, the Ministry of Education, what I found there was either actual personnel from the UN or the personnel of the uh, education department seeking to implement some of the uh, policy recommendations that were coming out of the peace agreement. So, you know, these projects of, of top-down Islamic State mobilization were very much um, on hold in those in those years that I did the bulk of my field work. Um, and it forced me to look elsewhere. And when I began to look elsewhere for where this kind of Islamic State building was going on, I began to see the Islamic State as both more pervasive and more elusive than I had imagined when I went into the field. And what I mean by that is that there was a, a project that wasn't just taking place top down from the state uh, uh, directing itself at the population, but was also taking place in the public sphere mm-hmm. to uh, instill a certain kind of popular uh, affiliation with something called the Islamic State. And it didn't always mean uh, attachment to the regime. Attach- attachment to the Islamic State could mean many things for many different people. And, you know, what we, what we saw take place over the years is, in fact, um, many different attachments to an Islamic political language or an Islamic political order that weren't necessarily copying that of that of the regime. Um, and so I think I began to see the state both empirically and theoretically as much messier than I had when I went into the field and thought, okay, all I got to do is study these few institutions and I'll understand it. It was kind of inhering itself in places that one might not normally expect it. And, and I looked there. And, and it's fascinating, the, the, the cultivation of this Islamic public sphere that you describe and the way that it reshapes the way people argue, the way people talk. Um, and uh, I, I found that part fascinating, the, 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 the shift from formal politics into this cultivation of public space. Yeah, thanks. I mean, this is this to me was what became unavoidable as I as I started my fieldwork there, because the grammar of political conversation uh, was so shifted into being an Islamic one that even, you know, when I was working with leftists and saw leftists explaining their kind of uh, approach to uh, to politics, we saw the way in which this kind of thing seeped into discourse at a very, very deep level. Um, and that's why I think uh, even, you know, with the fall of this particular regime, the there's a way in which um, the imprint of the Islamic State uh, lives on um, in some very real ways. And I think um, that has to do with the way this political project sought to instill an Islamic uh, political ideal in something beyond just the institutional life of Sudan. And how much of it, I mean, as you observe it, how much of it is actually internalized as this grammar of everyday political discourse versus generating resistance to to the project from the people who supported the revolution? I think it would be a mistake to think that the people who supported the revolution, even even though perhaps the the loudest voices um, now uh, are speaking very much in terms of a secular political order, I think it would be a mistake to 
to equate the revolution with opposition to Islamic politics writ large. Um, certainly the revolution was opposed to uh, Omar al-Bashir, his regime, the uh, political party that he represented, and their particular vision. But what I'm trying to argue is that Islamic politics was much, much broader than that and became much broader than that. Some of that was due to the cultivation of the, of, of the regime, the, the work that the regime had done, and others came out of other uh, trends and, and other uh, sources. But what, what I mean to say is that many who opposed uh, this particular iteration of the Islamic State were themselves uh, interested in other versions of uh, a political Islam. Um, can I, if I can give you, that's often, uh, the, there's an image that's often uh, taken to represent the mm -hmm. Sudanese revolution um, of the last year. And it's this image, a very famous image that I imagine you've seen, uh, Mark, of uh, the activist Ala uh, Salah, uh, standing on top of a car and giving yeah. a sermon of some sort. And, and it's often referred to as the Kandaka picture, uh, Kandaka being the classical name of the Nubian uh, queens. She's wearing jewelry that's very evocative of that. And certainly, uh, it's something I've written on elsewhere, certainly this, um, this uh, pre-Islamic period is being invoked. But uh, what's, what's often not, uh, what, what's never focused on is what she was actually saying. The, the, the still image is there, but it's actually a still, I believe it's the one that's circulated around is a video still, as far as I know. But anyhow, there, there are videos of, of that particular moment that she's standing on the cart. And what she's talking about is Islam, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it's this, it's, she's reading a poem. It's a revolutionary poem that uh, first uh, started to circulate around the protest squares in 2013 and was kind of revitalized in the 2018-19 uh, protests and the protests are uh, sorry the the poem is about the uh the stealing and the uh the uh, sort of um what's the word for it um the the misappropriation of islam by the regime certainly uh, mm -hmm. it talks about that you it, it it's, some of the lines are uh, they uh they ruled us in the name of religion. They oppressed us in the name of religion, etc. But then uh, the second half of the poem is actually about about what uh, what a what a political Islam would look like that wasn't based on the regime's vision. So it says Islam is innocent of these things. Uh, the true Islam asks us to stand up to our oppressors. The true Islam asks us to not be silent in the face of injustice, etc. And so even this conversation that's uh, you know, often taken as, okay, this is a totally new era, focusing on the pre-Islamic past and bringing up uh, uh, values that are opposed to those that the uh, Islamic political order put forward, is thinking through a different role for Islam in politics, one, uh, one uh, in Islam of social justice. So that's just one example, but there's many, many other examples of post-revolutionary Islamic politics out there. Just this morning, I was reading the work of an extremely uh, conservative Islamic activist uh, who always was uh, anti-regime in the sense that he didn't think the regime went far enough in, in instituting a true Islamic state, who now in the post-regime order um, sees himself as 
pro the goals of the revolution, but very much against the goals of the particular uh, civilian administration out there right now and is putting forward another uh, vision of Islamic politics for Sudan's future. So I, I guess what I'm trying to do is, is de-link here the connection between Islamic politics and the regime. They are one, the former regime, the Bashir regime, they're one iteration of it, but uh, Islamic politics lives on in, in both extremely liberal versions like Al-Assad's uh, version and in uh, extremely conservative versions as well. This is so interesting. We could go so many different ways in this conversation, but I actually want to go back a little bit in the book um, because there's something which for me as kind of a, you know, kind of a standard political scientist type, it, it was one of the most you know, challenging parts of it. And it's the way that you talk about the, uh, these kind of vernaculars of of discussion about and through Islam with these anecdotes, the way people engage about these mm. questions, which to someone like me just seems so foreign and alien. And yet, to me, one of the real contributions of the book is showing how ordinary people are experiencing Islam and Islamist politics in a conceptual universe, in a language which is totally different from what we're, at least I'm used to hearing from Muslim Brotherhood leaders or, you know, like those kinds of intellectuals. Th thanks for this question. I mean, this is something that also comes out of my own schooling in the field. Um, when I realized that the questions I had brought with me were, were the wrong questions. I'd also come into this uh, experience having read the Muslim Brotherhood intellectuals and sort of understanding um, Islamic politics as basically being a, a post-colonial project. Um, and um, what I came to realize through my interlocutors telling me, you're asking the wrong questions, these aren't the kind of things mm -hmm. that we're interested in, is that... Uh, you know, the model through which we'd been studying Islamic politics, through which I'd studied Islamic politics, was reading it to the extent that it was relevant to the kinds of things that Western political discourse are interested in. It's what I call the kind of civil Islam model or the enemy in the mirror model, the quote mm -hmm. two uh, books, uh, two great books, but books uh, on Islamic politics that take different approaches. One approach being, okay, what, um, how can Islam put forth, you know, is Islam merely, if we understand it uh, in a more empathetic way, we can see that, uh, in fact, what looks very foreign to us is, is a civil democratic politics in a different idiom. Exactly. One, that's one model that's out there. And another model that says, okay, there's something um, entirely oppositional to, uh, uh, that, that's within conversation with the West, but is taking a kind of oppositional uh, approach to uh, to Western demands or Western global logic. And I, I began to ask this question of what if Islamic politics isn't having a conversation with us at all? That was the question that became right. really interesting. We, we sort of assume it's having a conversation with us, either, you know, uh, like us, but in a different language or, or pushing against us in some ways. But what if it isn't having a conversation with us at all? And I think Sudan offered a really unique experience to ask that question that I think maybe would be difficult to ask in other contexts. Um, and the reason it, it allowed that is because of the, the length of time, right? I, I think very much uh, the kind of classic Muslim Brotherhood uh, approach could be applied to the first year or two of the uh, Infaz, the 1989 revolution, the 
kind of enemy in the mirror approach. They're engaging with Western political thought and, and offering a, a different approach. That, that without a doubt for the first couple of years um, was there. But as time went on, um, this wasn't about overthrowing, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a Western order or a, uh, or a, you know, a secular, uh, a secular Westernized model. This was about a conversation that was occurring within Islam, within Islamic politics, sorry, on what, uh, what kind of political order would serve us best. And so the conversation wasn't, bet- it was no longer in that revolutionary moment, I would say. It was in a moment in which a lot of different voices were popping up, debating with each other about this experience of 10, 20, and then 30 years of Islamic politics. The, the object became Islamic politics, not Western colonialism any longer. And when that happened, I think you, you get this depth of, um, of conversation, this depth of resources and sources uh, that people are pulling on from Islamic political pasts uh, that aren't there in that initial moment when when it's about pushing against secularism and westernization. It simply wasn't about that anymore. It was about, is this an authentic kind of Islamic politics that you've been uh, imposing on us for the last 10 years? Or might there be other kinds of politics, uh, political resources within Islam that we might pull on uh, to create the true Islamic state that you guys haven't done? And, and Sudan had all kinds of resources to ask those kinds of questions, whether it was sort of originalist Salafism or Sufism or any number of other resources out there to think through Islamic politics anew, in which, you know, us, uh, the Western researchers, were, were not part of the conversation at all. So the, the Salafi voices, the Salafi challengers, to me, coming from a Middle Eastern context, um, those were fairly familiar. But the Sufi challengers were actually uh, the ones that I found the most kind of epistemologically challenging, even, ontolo- even ontologically, the way they think about authority, the way they think about um, you know, the, about knowledge. Um, and I wonder, is that like something unique to Sudan? Or I mean, how did you experience and encounter uh, these uh, Sufi engagements with the political Islamic project? Well, you know, I mean, there's, there's a way in which uh, politics, not just after the Inqaz, but certainly after the Inqaz, uh, has always been inescapable for Sufis in Sudan. I mean, of course, uh, in the late 19th century, a, a messianic movement that uh, sought to cancel out the Sufi orders, but arose out of the Sufi orders, sort of post-Sufism, I would call it, um, came to rule Sudan until the British came in and, and shut it down. Um, but also the British, when they uh, sought to uh, establish political parties in Sudan that would be uh, trans uh, ethnic and trans regional, they t- turned to the Sufi orders because the Sufi orders were the only things out, the only kind of sociological unit out there to think across uh, regions and ethnicities. So, uh, at the eve of independence, the two main Sufi, the two main political parties emerged out of Sufi or post-Sufi uh, movements. So, Sufism has always had this really important um, role in Islamic. Uh, politics in Sudan. When the Qaz uh, government came to power in 1989, they came um, they came very much critical of, of Sufi orders, seeking to uh, suppress them as, as backwards or sectarian, they called them, uh, among many other insults. Um, but 
as time wore on, they also realized the kind of inescapability of Sufism to Islamic politics. And they began many projects to politicize Sufism. They established a whole um, center within Sudan, a whole uh, apparatus within Sudan uh, called Al-Majlis Al-Qawmi Al-Zikr wa Zakarin, the, uh, the uh, National Council for Remembrance of God and those who remember that sought to kind of distill certain ideas out of Sufism while taking the, the sociological unit of the Sufi order out of the picture so that they wouldn't be a, a, a threat to them. But, but, but they liked kind of what the Sufis could do in terms of instilling a, an emotional attachment to Islam and thus perhaps Islamic politics, etc. So there was a real attempt to kind of mine Sufis, particularly among the Islamists who themselves didn't have much uh, uh, popular uh, affiliation. They were mostly an elite movement uh, to use the Sufis to kind of um, support their own uh, agenda. But, you know, uh, these things could never be, these kinds of projects could were never fully uh, controllable. The Sufis were independent actors. And, you know, the second that they were given uh, some platform uh, to engage on political issues, they went in their own directions. Um, so this was really fascinating to me how the, the Sufis were kind of uh, both, uh, and you know, there's when, when you say Sufis in Sudan, you mean you know hundreds of different movements and hundreds of different uh, uh, agendas and orders and personalities and whatnot. But uh, certainly there were there was a significant amount of Sufi orders who both had a foot in the civilization project and some of the interests of the regime, but were taking it in, in their own novel directions. Let, let, me, uh, let me ask one last question, um, which is, you, you have a, um, uh, a quote, uh, which is a kind of familiar quote to me uh, uh, from Hassan Turabi, uh, uh, where it basically he says something to the effect of, um, the, the problem we made when we came into power was we spent too much time on politics um, mm -hmm. and, and we kind of lost, uh, we kind of took our eye off the ball in terms of uh, religion. And, you know, he said that like maybe, what, 20 years ago, something like that. When After writing this book and after looking at, at all these developments, I mean, how, how would you assess that, that assessment by Turabi of the Islamic project in Sudan? That's a great question. I'm um, not sure exactly how to answer it, but, um, you know, I mean, Tarabi is, is saying that at a point that he's uh, at a convenient point for him. He's, he's out of power at that point. Um, I think that uh, those who remained in power would, would take issue. They would say, no, we, you know, we had to rethink the project in certain ways, but we certainly uh, were uh, were and remain interested in in the place of Islam and in, in, in politics in Sudan, um, but without a doubt, I mean, for many many, and I think we can't uh, underplay this sentiment. For many many uh, people, uh, the uh, Islamic project of that the regime came to power promoting, uh, they were very very disillusioned with what happened to it. Uh, you know, Tarabi among them, but but many, many others. Um, and this to me was one of the most interesting things to, to watch in Sudan, how thinkers like Tarabi and others came to recalibrate Islamic politics because of the failures of the regime, because of the, the ways in which they were disappointed with what the regime brought. 
So without a doubt, I mean, the regime fell. And at the time the regime fell, there was very little support for their ideological projects, even among them, themselves. They, had, they themselves had moved away from a lot of the things that they had promoted initially. Um, but I, I think this space of, of failure opened up uh, so, so much other space for uh, really interesting engagements on Islam and politics from other directions, and of course, other other political models as well. Well, great. Thanks. So we've been speaking with uh, Noah Solomon of Carleton College about his book, For Love of the Prophet, an Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State uh, from Princeton University Press, and about Sudan today. Noah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thank you.